don't know if my dogs have ever been introduced before. <laughs> Can't wait to tell them that. They're going to be so encouraged. Uh, ladies, it's a joy to, to be with you this morning. And as you've been studying your, your lesson this week, I think you know what a, what a big task we have in front of us. So I want to just invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 1. While you open, I'll just remind us that there's a reason why we encourage people to, to read the gospel of John. Maybe you've been asked by a new Christian or even a curious unbeliever who wants to know more about the Bible and, and wants to know more about God. And they ask, you know, what, what parts of the Bible should I read? Junior hires ask me that all the time. Where do I start? Where, where should I begin? And my answer is often the gospel of John. And, and why? Why is that my response? Why is that often the recommendation that, that so many Christians make for a part of the Bible that's so helpful? What's wrong with Matthew and Mark and Luke? They tell the story of Jesus as well. And, and, and Matthew helps us understand that, that Jesus is king, a helpful message. And Mark portrays Jesus as the suffering servant who came to save us from sin, also a great message. Luke depicts Jesus and his humanity, and, and we, we need to understand why Jesus is truly our representative, why Jesus can die for us. And, and what of John? From John, we get to learn this divine nature of Christ. Jesus is both king and servant. He is man and he's God, but it isn't just the divine nature of, of John, and I think you see that this week, that, that makes this gospel so helpful to read. It's the greatness of Jesus that John portrays. That's what makes John so unique. It's as if John is, is like a, a telescope that helps us see the night sky so much better. John helps us understand our, our Savior and his greatness. It just gets bigger and deeper and, and broader. And we understand it it's so much more. And I'm delighted to be a part of this study with you. But if I'm honest, feeling a little overwhelmed that the section in front of us this morning, this opening part of John's gospel, it's, it's kind of like the ocean. You know, we can, we can tiptoe up to the water if we want and get our feet wet, and that's fine. But as we just keep studying and keep reading and keep looking at this text, I think soon you'll find that the depths of a chapter like this, they're hard to find the bottom. And the subject, which is, is Christ here, he just gets bigger and he gets bigger and you get this view of of Jesus that continues to grow and I hope it's compelling you to to keep studying and keep reading our view of Jesus it impacts the way that we live the way that we act the way that we think it impacts the way that we worship 
In fact, the opening 18 verses of, of John chapter 1 are, are thought to be an early hymn for the church. This was perhaps part of their worship. And, you know, why shouldn't it be? It's an amazing opening section to this gospel. You have the eternality of God and the Trinity, and you have the divine nature of Christ, and you have the reality that, that Jesus is also the, the creator of, of all things. This hymn includes the incarnation, helps us understand the, the birth of Christ who came to save we get a glimpse of even his rejection and redemption and, and salvation, how all this is possible. It's all in these verses. It's incredible revelation. And it's also really beautifully written. It would be a great song to sing. I, I think it's it's no surprise to me after having been in this text this last week with, with all of you that students of the Bible and, and scholars of the scripture, they come to John chapter one and they all agree. They, they label it one of the most resplendent chapters of the whole of scripture. So no pressure. <laughs> this morning, I just want to, I want to help us keep our eyes fixed on Christ and I think we can do that by just dividing this up into two parts. Let's call verses 1 to 18 the the grandeur of Christ, and verses 19 to 34 we'll call the greatest witness. Our goal is to leave here with a, a bigger view of Jesus, a deeper understanding and even appreciation for who he truly is. So let's Let's read God's word together, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. As we contemplate these verses, we're going to intentionally keep our focus on Christ, the grandeur of Christ. I, I want us to see that. We're going to sort of skip over these verses about John the Baptist, but we're going to end with him, so it'll, it'll be okay. But there's just so much to highlight here, and I'd love to sort of look at each individual tree. It would be a rich study for us this morning, but I think better for us to see all of it, to look at the entire forest in front of us, this whole picture, a beautiful description of our Savior. And I know you've been studying it this week. And if your brain hasn't hurt, it's going to hurt a little bit this morning. This text forces our brains to kind of turn in directions that are difficult, but it's worth it to acquire this deeper and bigger understanding of who our Savior is. And it begins with his person, what Jesus is like. Who is Jesus? Well, he is the Word. Verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. And there's a verb here that I believe helps us greatly. That verb was, it's going to repeat, but it's a verb that implicates that something is ongoing. It's not just that Jesus was in the beginning, it's that he was continuing. He was ongoing. And this continuing description, it reminds us of a really important truth, same one that Genesis 1-1 makes, and that's this, that God has always been. He's always been. In the beginning, or better, in our beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was already there. He has always existed. He's eternal. And John tells us that Jesus, the word, is eternal. Jesus said in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is where our picture of Jesus begins. And as we, we think about him, we must know that he has always, always existed. Our timeline has a beginning. His does not. And verse 1 continues. Not only was Jesus in the beginning, but he was with God. And it's the same verb. Jesus was not just with God, but was continuing with God. And it's another insightful truth, but one that reveals that our God is very complicated. He is so different from us. Isaiah 55, 8 helps us a little bit, some clarity here. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is very different from us. Very different. And not only are we thinking about Jesus' eternality, he's always existed and will always exist, but Jesus is also part of the Holy Trinity. God is one God and he consists of one simple essence. 
We know that that's true, and yet we also know he exists eternally as three distinct persons. What does John 1 1 tell us? Well, Jesus, as the Son of God, was always with the Father. And by implication, the Holy Spirit is there too. They are all God and they are not the same. And this little phrase that tells us so much, it, it also reveals that Jesus was not just with the Father, but there is an idea of closeness. He was with God and there's an intimacy and a nearness. There's this perfect relationship that exists in the Holy Trinity. There's perfect love and equality. There's perfect relationship and perfect joy between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And verse one concludes just to make sure that we don't miss it and that we understand this complex truth as much as we can. It says, and the word was God. It's no surprise to us when we come to this third one. It's the same. It's ongoing. It's continuous. Jesus was continually God. And you need to know that. He didn't take on this form of the son. God doesn't wear different hats. Jesus is God and the father is God and the Holy Spirit is God. And they are distinct from each other. Jesus has always been God in his essence and in his character. Verse one is a massive sentence. (laughs) It's a gigantic verse. We could spend so much time on it, but even here we begin to just be overwhelmed and get this sense of, of the grandeur of Jesus Christ. He, he's God and he always has been and he always will be. And he's so different from us, this, this concept of the Trinity. And verse two continues, He's in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is also the creator. He created your favorite vacation spot. And that tree in the backyard that your husband hates, he created that too. He created that son or daughter that you tuck into bed every night. He created all And we could zoom out or we could zoom in. We could think of the stars and the galaxies or the molecules and the atoms. But we know that Jesus created it all. We learn that from Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him And for him, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. As creator, Jesus created in numbers that we can't even begin to calculate. This big, big God has power to do this. And I think we're meant to be reminded that he also created us. He created you. 
And it's, it's helpful to know that in case you're wondering, you're included in all things. So this overwhelming description of Christ, it's grand and it's deep. I really don't think we could hit the bottom of all that's here, but don't miss what John is saying about Jesus. This eternal God who's always been, who lives in perfect relationship with his father and the spirit, he made you and he knows what you need. As we're going to see this morning, he knows how much your sinful heart needed the gospel. And he knows how much your new heart in him needs to grow in godliness. He knows you. He knows you need saving. He knows you need sanctifying. He knows when you need strength. He knows when you need grace. He knows when your patience is gone. (laughs) And Jesus knows that. How? Because he's God and he made all things. And our chapter continues. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus was the word. And now John says Jesus is also light. Which is it, John? Well, it's, it's both. Because this is God's way of helping us understand his desire to reveal himself to us. As the word, we understand Jesus' desire to communicate, to reveal the Father, to help us understand who God is and who we are in light of who God is. You may think of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Hebrews 1-2 says, But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We understand who Jesus is. Jesus reveals as the word. But there is more here. Jesus also reveals himself by shining as light into the darkness. Jesus shines his light into our darkness on our sinful hearts that we might understand who he is. We could go to the most famous Bible verse ever, just a few chapters over. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus is the life-giving light to the world. He's the life-giving light to you. Our hearts are darkened. They are 
They are are dark and wicked and corrupted by sin. We're spiritually dead in our sin. That's what Ephesians 2 says. That's how it describes us. But Jesus came to shine the light of spiritual life. He came to offer us life in him. To make us new creations in him. And salvation is offered to, to all who believe. Isn't that amazing? But it has to, to be that way because we're spiritually dead in our sin. Jesus has to shine his light into the darkness. That's the only way we can be saved. And John helps us understand that this is precisely what Jesus did. And it's not going to surprise you. This is also an ongoing verb. Jesus is constantly, continuously doing this. This is what he's doing. Constantly shining the light of his gospel into the darkest hearts. That they might have spiritual life in him. And I love what John says. His light, it can't be overcome by darkness. I led a youth group on a missions trip to the Bahamas. I know, suffering for Jesus. We did a lot of work, okay? But on one of the days off, the missionaries took us exploring, and we went into this really, now that I think about it, kind of claustrophobic cave, underground cave. And we were down in there, and we got well into this cave, and there was this huge portion, this huge room. And had all the students turn off their flashlights. And it was a darkness that I don't think I've ever like, felt before. It was just really, really dark. And I remember talking about this verse along with some other passages of scripture. And, and I said, let me show you something. And I just turned on my like, phone light or flashlight or something. It wasn't very bright. And that little light filled that whole portion of that cave. The darkness cannot overcome the light. It has no choice. It must yield to the light. And that is exactly what John is saying here about Christ, our light. The darkness of our sin, it must yield to Christ. It cannot overcome his light. And it's powerful to think of the light of Jesus, what he did to save you and how he's still working to shine his light into the darkest of hearts. In verses 9 to 13, they they capture for us the reality that not everyone receives this light. It's just like we read in chapter 3. Some hate the light. Why? Because they love the darkness of their sin. They love it. They love their sin more than what Christ is offering here. And verse 12 instructs us for the first time in this gospel precisely what Christ is offering. We see the benefits of receiving Jesus. It says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who believe are given eternal life. 
Those who believe that this eternal God who created all things, who took on flesh, who entered our history and he ultimately laid down his life for your sin, that he died on the cross and was resurrected back to his father's side. Those who believe that this word and this light died for them, John writes in the simplest of terms, they become children of God. You can be born again. Those who believe in this gospel, who let the light of Christ shine into their dark hearts, they become new creations and they're brought into God's family. They become children of God. And this salvation, you you know, so many of you know this, it's a gift. But even here we're reminded you can't earn it. You you can't buy it. There's no will of man doesn't help here. It's given by grace. And it's grace that rounds out this song, this grandiose picture of Jesus. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And verse 16, for, from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. When Jesus took on flesh, he revealed the glory of God. It's what the writer of Hebrews was talking about. Jesus was the perfect representation of his father, the exact imprint of his nature. And when he was here, everyone who saw him, John writes for us, they they saw his glory and that glory was full of grace and truth. And then John says that from his fullness, we've all received. And then he just says, it's grace upon grace. And it's really like grace replaced with grace. Grace instead of grace. It's, It's an amazing picture. It's, it's endless grace. And that's amazing to think about this grand picture of Jesus. It ends with this incredible truth that I, I know so many of you have experienced firsthand. You've known that moment when you thought Jesus has been so gracious to me and so good to me. It's got to be getting close to the end. Surely his supply is is running out. You wonder, why does Jesus just keep showing me love and, and grace? Why is he so good to me? How might you say that? How would you communicate that in the first century? I'd like to think you would write it this way. I have received grace upon grace. Grace replaced by grace. He has an endless supply of grace and it's full and it always is. And as his grace works in your life today, you don't need to worry about tomorrow. There will be plenty of grace for tomorrow as well. It's grace heaped upon grace. It's constant and it's continuously flowing and it's endless Martin Luther put it this way, Christ, our Lord, is an interminable well, the chief source of all 
grace, even if the whole world were to draw from this fountain enough grace and truth to transform all people into angels, still it would not lose as much as a drop. What a joy to know this grace, isn't it? It kind of makes you want to sing. <laughs> what a comfort to know that the one who made all things and who holds all things together came to offer you an endless supply of grace and you desperately need it. There's enough grace to save you. There's enough grace to transform your life into a life that honors Christ. There's enough grace to complete this work that God has started in you. There is plenty of grace to see you all the way to heaven. And in the end, Jesus will still be full of grace and truth. This picture of Jesus here in John chapter 1, it's a lot to take in, but we benefit from making our heads hurt a little bit. We get to understand our Savior better and to grasp a little clearer who he is and what he's done and how he continues to work in our lives. This is the the grandeur of Christ, the greatness of Christ on display. And there's more. As John takes us to the greatest witness of Christ. The following verses begin in verse 19. Just read it with me. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. 
It's a long section. I see the time. Don't worry. We're going to move quickly through this. But I think it's worth it to look a little bit longer and study this a little bit deeper. John the Baptist was the first and original goat, greatest of all time for those who need a translation. He was the original. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. You know the story of John the Baptist. His parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it was told him by the angel Gabriel. His parents found out that they were going to have a son, and and he was going to have a very special task. He was going to be a witness for the Lord to come. Luke chapter 1, verse 13, records that whole section if you want to read about it. But John's purpose, even as he tells us here in this section, was to be a witness for Jesus. And that's exactly what he became. As he grew, and he was maybe a little eccentric, the camel hair coat and the locust honey diet, it's whatever. But he did what he was called to do. He knew who Jesus was. He knew who the Christ was, and he had the honor of being the first witness. How did John know? Well, not only does he say here, but Matthew chapter 3 also tells us the answer. It was at Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3.13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And what we don't have in John is the next verse, Matthew 3, 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. John knew that Jesus was the son of God. He said, I didn't know who he was before this. I didn't know who he was. But now I, I know that it's, it's this man, it's this Jesus. And that knowledge, it impacted his message and his life. He'd been preaching for a year or so and Large crowds were going to John to hear this message of repentance and this need to be baptized. And so everyone is wondering, who is this guy? Who is this John the Baptist? So they send a little party of inquisition. Is it, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Question after question. And finally, John says, verse 23, I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. He confessed Twice, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the Christ. I'm the voice crying, makes straight the way of the Lord. John knows who Jesus is, and he knows this is the point of his life. This is the purpose that God gave him to declare the truth about who Jesus actually is. He knows his task doesn't make him like extra special. He knows that he's not a big deal. He's not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandal. And you don't even need cultural history to understand that. It still makes sense. He has this humble view. Jesus is so far above him. 
Why does he take that position? Well, let's let John the Baptist tell us. Verse 29, next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that word lamb is so important. We sang it this morning. It's so crucial to understand the use of that word would have created such imagery for John's audience. I think the biggest picture for them would have been the Passover lamb. Such an important part of Jewish history. Exodus 12 records that for us. The blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorposts to spare Israel from God's judgment. The blood of the lamb. It it saved God's people from his judgment that night. What's the point? Well, forgiveness of sin comes at a cost. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus is declared and testified and witnessed by John to be the Lamb of God. Here is the one who will pay the price for your sin. Here is the one who will shed his blood. Jesus is this lamb, this one to bring forgiveness of sin, the one to bring salvation, to bring redemption to the whole world. John the Baptist is the first one to get to declare to the lost world around him the good news of the gospel, but also the cost of forgiveness. And in just a few words, he explains the reality for all of us that our salvation comes at the sacrifice of Jesus himself. Jesus is our lamb. Jesus' blood is what makes your forgiveness possible. I know it's not pleasant to think about, but we must know who he is and and what he's done. And in order to receive this forgiveness, let me start to wrap this up. People needed John's message of repentance. One commentator writes this, John's water baptisms were baptisms of repentance. That's how he prepared the way. People had to turn from their sins so they might receive the Messiah and the benefits of his salvation. John's message helped the masses to understand their need for the gospel. They understood that they were sinners, that they needed to repent, to turn away from their sin And we need that same message today. And verse 33 unpacks for us that Jesus came to bring new life, to baptize us, not with water, but to baptize or immerse us. That's what that word means, into a new life with him and with the Holy Spirit. A verse I'm sure you're familiar with, Romans 6.3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And again, if you want to understand that a little better, it just means immersed. We're immersed into his death. We're buried, therefore, Paul writes, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
John the Baptist got to tell his world about the power of Jesus Christ to save, the power of the lamb to forgive sin and give life and honestly make us new. Jesus is the lamb of God. And John says in verse 34, I've seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. This is the grandeur of Christ. This is the greatest witness who even adds to that already incredible picture. We should pause and let John's witness, his testimony, have its moment in our life today. Do you really believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God for you? Has his death paid for your sins? And have you truly been immersed into his death and resurrection that you might be born again? Are you walking in newness of life? Have you truly turned from your sin, recognizing who your savior really is and what he actually did for you? Jesus is the son of God. He's the word who took on flesh. He's the light who brings life. He's the one offering endless grace. He's the lamb who shed his blood for you. He is the one and the only one who can fill your life with his spirit. He's the son of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this chapter that gives us this better picture of your son. It's, it's no wonder that our song in heaven will be worthy is the lamb. Lord Jesus, you are so worthy of our praise, of our trust, of our faith. Pray that you would change lives by your light and through your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.